0: Now this morning, I want to talk to you about another miracle of Jesus. This miracle is one of only two miracles recorded by all four gospel writers. So we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So one of the miracles, I'll help you out with this, is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That miracle is mentioned in all four gospels, but there's one other miracle that is mentioned um, in all four, and only one. So I'll get you thinking about that for a moment. we saw, I think it was last week. Did we do the wine, the water turn into wine? The week before, okay, yep. Yeah. Well, this time before last. But anyway, so the, if you looked at the one that Darren did a couple of weeks back when Jesus turned water into wine, uh, that was only recorded by the Apostle John in John chapter 2. And that was the first miracle which Jesus performed. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually didn't mention that miracle. Uh, when it comes to Jesus healing, Peter's mother in law. That's actually mentioned in three of the four gospels. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel record that story, and that's understandable. I mean, Peter is one of the disciples, and his mother in law is healed. So, you can imagine that being a close relative, that's the reason why it was mentioned. What about when Jesus walked on the water? Well, that miracle was actually only recorded by Matthew, Mark, and John's gospel, it's actually not recorded in Luke's gospel. So as amazing as that gravity-defying feat was, it was only recorded by three of the four gospel writers. Or we could look at other miracles. You've got the miraculous catch of fish, but that's only found in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 5. So again, which story besides the resurrection is mentioned in all four gospel accounts? Very good, someone's got it. Feeding of the 5,000, we can have that on the wall. So all four gospel... Uh, writers wrote about the feeding of the 5,000, which I must admit I found rather odd to start with. I, if I was going to write about the spectacular miracles of Jesus, I didn't immediately think of this one. But as we, uh, yeah, they want food. That's, that's right. Whoever said that, yeah. Yeah, the writers were hungry when they were writing. So we read in... Uh, You know, there's a verse at the end of John's gospel, the very last verse of John's gospel. He says, there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so each of the gospel writers obviously wrote only a handful of stories Of what jesus did before them we read verses like in matthew chapter 4 verse 23 it says jesus went about all galilee teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people then his fame went throughout all syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed epileptics paralytics and he healed them and great multitudes followed him So even in a summary paragraph like that, there would have been hundreds and hundreds of people who Jesus healed. Cripples being healed, diseases being made um, to go away, um, skin diseases being cured. And so what we read about in the Gospels is just a handful of those stories. And they use those stories to highlight something about who Jesus Christ is so that we, in the 21st century, would have the benefit of coming to know who this Jesus is. So this morning, we're looking at the story of the feeding of the 5,000. So I'll read the story to you from John's gospel. So in John chapter 6, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, "'Gather up the fragments that remain "'so that nothing is lost.' Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, Truly, this is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So the first scene I want to look at this morning in this uh, story is the setting leading up to this miracle. Now it says that great multitudes were following Jesus because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. According to the other three accounts, Jesus had withdrawn from the crowds with his disciples because firstly, John the Baptist had just been beheaded. So I can imagine that would have taken a toll on him and the disciples because he's a close relative. Uh, And the disciples had also been engaged in a lot of public ministry at the time. So, in Mark's account, we read that Jesus said to his disciples, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So, this is a time of uh, heaps and heaps of ministering to these people. But when the people saw them leaving, um, they followed him. So, that didn't work very well for him, trying to get some privacy and alone time. But Jesus, rather than telling these people to go away or telling them that he needed some space, Mark records that Jesus had compassion on the multitudes because they were like sheep having no shepherd. And isn't this beautiful that we have a King who doesn't send people away um, when he when they come to him for help? Help. Luke's account says Jesus received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. As I mentioned in a previous sermon, Jesus always perfectly balanced his teaching and his miracles. He never healed anyone without also teaching them something about the kingdom of God. So it wasn't just about compassion for the people, he was showing the people something about himself. And we should also notice that Jesus always dealt with the whole man. I think sometimes in the churches we get a little either too spiritual or not spiritual enough. You know, there's some churches that are so focused on feeding the poor and social justice issues that we forget to tell them about the kingdom of God and we forget to tell them about Jesus, our King. And then we have other churches that are so focused about telling people that they need to be saved that they refuse to to reach out to the local community or those abroad and to help them with mental illnesses and help them in their poverty and their struggles in life. We need to be dealing with the whole person just as Jesus Christ did. We need to realize that humans don't just have physical needs. They don't just have uh, mental needs, emotional needs, but they also have the spiritual need. They need Christ who can save them, who can make them complete and whole. So if we, uh, if we look at our next scene um, in this story, we see that the disciples are starting to get concerned that it's getting late and the people have no food. So in Mark chapter six, we read, when the day was now fast spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy for themselves bread for they have nothing to eat but he answered and said to them you give them something to eat and they said to him shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat but he said to them how many loaves do you have go and see and when they found out they said five and two small fish now Skeptics have always tried to disprove the miracles of Jesus. They've always tried to come up with naturalistic explanations for why these miracles didn't actually take place in a supernatural way. Uh, In John's gospel, we read that it was this small boy who actually came to the disciples with five loaves of bread and two small fish. And um, the naturalistic skeptics have said that perhaps this, this kind act of this small child offering his lunch food, inspired the rest of the multitudes to pull out of their lunch bags enough food to feed all of the multitudes, and that there wasn't really a miracle. The only true miracle was the miracle of love. Oh. So that's the skeptical version, but the problem with that is that they don't pay attention to the eyewitness accounts. You know, if we wanna study history, we've gotta pay attention to the details of history. We can't rewrite history to suit our own appetites. So when we look at the, uh, the eyewitnesses who were actually there and we look at what they actually wrote, we can see some obvious facts. Firstly, the disciples were getting concerned because they had no food, it says. It doesn't say that they had some food. They had no food. They literally could only find one person with food, a small boy with some bread and some fish. Secondly, there was 5,000 men. Um, Matthew clarifies that there was also women and children present. Now, this isn't a sexist thing again. This is something that the Jews practiced all throughout the Old Testament. Often when they did a census and they counted how many people there were in Israel, they only counted the men, and it was assumed that there was families under those men, um, and that's how you get the total count. So when they say 5,000 men, it was more likely that it was probably between 20 to 25,000 people that Jesus fed on this occasion. Now that's a lot of people. (laughs) I don't know if you can imagine 20,000 people. So when Jesus asked the disciples, yeah, football fields, yeah. Um, When Jesus decided, asked the disciples if they could feed them, they were only able to find a few small fish and bread. Philip answered Jesus and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. Now, 200 denarii was about six months wage for a normal working Jew at the time. So Philip was saying that even if they could sum up enough money to buy six months wage worth of bread, they still wouldn't have enough bread to feed all the multitudes that that were there, that they would even have just a little for each of them. So yeah, contrary to the skeptics, there's no real natural explanation for how you could feed that many people with only one small lunch. So I wanna also consider at this point to pause and think about the blindness of these disciples. So if we try to imagine the scene, Jesus has spent all day with these multitudes healing their sick, performing wonderful signs and wonders. He's probably healed blind people Um, They now have sight. There's been cripples brought to him that he's raised up off the ground, and they're now able to walk. And the disciples have seen all of these supernatural and powerful miracles that are unexplainable. And he was preaching the kingdom of God and showing the disciples that he himself was sent by God and able to do the impossible. But we see these disciples still looking at the natural circumstances, they're still caught up at the problem at hand, which is hey, we don't have enough food to feed all of these people. They didn't even consider that this miraculous, um, this miracle worker, Jesus, was actually able to meet the people's needs. And so I want to ask us the question this morning, are you like these disciples sometimes? So maybe there's a situation in your life that you think is too big to be solved uh, or the need may seem too great. And the problem we have as humans is we often just resort to our natural thinking and we forget that we serve a living God. Now there's nothing wrong with going to the doctor when we are sick or um, you know taking Panadol when we have a headache or anything like that but the thing that's wrong is when we as Christians refuse to go to God first and ask him for help and ask him for wisdom and so whatever trial you're facing this morning we need to remember our God is a supernatural and powerful and living God he's the creator of the whole universe and so don't think your need is too great for the Lord Jesus to meet it. In the next scene of our story, we see that Jesus told the disciples to go among the crowds and ask the people to sit down in groups of 50. Now, can you imagine the questions being asked of these disciples as they're seating the people? Like they're going out there, sitting them down, they're saying, why are we sitting down? Why 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 has Jesus asked you to tell me to sit down in a group of 50? And they're saying, well, uh, we've got food coming. Can you imagine the faith it would have taken for these disciples to step out before they've even seen where the food is coming from? It's a pretty amazing feat. Um, but this is nothing new in the ministry of the Lord Jesus and even in the Old Testament. God often asks his people to step out in faith before we see our miracle. So, for example, you'll remember back in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus called the fishermen to be his disciples. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Peter answered him and said to him, master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And then they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So at the very first time that peter actually meets the lord jesus peter was asked to do something to step out in faith to cast his nets out even though they'd fished all night and caught nothing and when he obeyed the lord jesus stepping out in faith then the miracle of fish came another example we read in luke chapter 17 that there were 10 lepers who came to jesus for healing and jesus said to them go show yourselves to the priests and this is a very odd thing because lepers were not to show themselves to the priest in Israel unless they had been cured of a skin disease. So if you had leprosy in Israel, you were an outcast. People didn't t- touch you. They didn't go near you. You had to run around telling people that you were a leper and people would flee from you. But Jesus said to him, go show yourselves to the priests, even though they were still leprous. And it says, as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. So it was as they journeyed to go see the priests, as they stepped out in faith in obedience to the, to the command of the Lord Jesus, then they were healed. So some of you listening to this sermon this morning might be on the fence about coming to Jesus for salvation. I've heard people say, if Jesus would appear to me in a vision or do some miraculous sign in my life, then I might become a Christian. The famous evangelist D.L. Moody once had A gentleman came to him who was a skeptic and he said listen Mr. Moody I have a sheet of paper here with a whole bunch of questions for you if you can answer every one of my questions I'll become a Christian and Mr. Moody very wisely said well no he's like you've heard my message on repentance and faith in Jesus you go off and become a Christian and then I'll answer your questions so the next week when uh, Moody was preaching again in the area the gentleman came back to him and he said Mr. Moody I've become a Christian And D.L. Moody responded, okay, um, where are those questions of yours? And he said, I have no more questions. You see, when he actually obeyed the command of the Lord Jesus and put his trust in him for salvation, all of his skepticism went out the window. So some of you might scoff at this message. You might scoff at Christianity because you think it's a foolish message, the thought that Jesus bleeding and dying on a cross for our salvation. is just some random Jew 2,000 years ago saying that he took our place at the cross and was raised from the dead. That might sound like a foolish message to you this morning, but I want you to know that the Christian message has always been a foolish message and that God designed it that way. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So if you haven't made your peace this morning with God by coming to Jesus for salvation, I'd invite you to act upon the message this morning, to come to him, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father in heaven except through me. Now, if we go back to our story, we can have a look at our next scene in John chapter 6. I'll read to you from John's Gospel. It says Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciple, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. So after Jesus had seated the people, he gave thanks. I know a lot of us give thanks for our food. A lot of us bless our food. Have you ever been to a, a dinner party with Christians and they're like, um, you know, God, we just ask that you'd bless this food to our bodies. I, I just wanted to let you know that the biblical form of blessing and giving thanks isn't actually blessing our food. It's blessing our father in heaven for providing the food Sometimes we get a little bit mixed up and a little bit too focused on our meal in front of us. We decide to bless the beautiful lobster instead of blessing our bellies. I mean, instead of blessing our Lord. (laughs) There we go, see? I was thinking about the food. I love lobster. Sorry about that. Um, I hope you're not allergic to seafood. So Matthew and Mark record that Jesus looked up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves before giving the food to the disciples for distribution. Now, most of you probably wouldn't realize this unless you are familiar with uh, Jewish practice, but for the last 2,000 years, there's been a common prayer that Jewish um, people make over their meals, even at the time of Jesus, which is called a blessing. Um, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, so I'm sorry if I butcher this, but I'm going to say it's Barakah. Baruka, baruka, okay, we'll go with baruka. Um So the, the blessing translates in English to this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Isn't that beautiful? Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And that's the very blessing that Jesus would have prayed when he offered thanks to the Father. So isn't it wonderful to pause and acknowledge our creator and our king before diving into a meal? If we go back to our story, though, we see that there were thousands of people who received this multiplication of bread. And it says that they received it until they were filled. There was so much food that Jesus commanded the disciples to go out and gather the fragments of the leftovers, and they were able to fill 12 baskets with the leftover food. So this is not just a a small miracle. This is a super abundant miracle. They didn't just get like one little tiny piece of bread like we do with communion and one little cup of juice. They got a multiplication of fish and a multiplication of bread. Now, as I was studying the scholars, which can sometimes be a good thing and sometimes not so good, there were many, many theories about the 12 baskets and what they represent. I mean, most obviously, when we think of the 12, we think of the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 apostles. And so it could be said that the 12 baskets that were gathered up were representative of the fact that Jesus is able to provide for the 12 tribes of Israel. He is their provider. And that's a pretty good explanation. Um, Some others have suggested, because of the 12, that perhaps It was saying that when the disciples went out and served the people, um, that they received a blessing too. Because it wasn't just the people who got blessed with bread. The disciples were able to take bread back with themselves as well. But if you want to ask me what the 12 baskets were all about, it's about superabundance. It really is. Jesus performed well over and above, and the disciples had lunch food for the next couple of trips. (laughs) Now, if we look at the next scene in our story, we need to see now at why this is called not just a miracle, but a sign. Now signs, when you're driving on the road, they point to something. And when we, when we look at this miracle, we see a sign pointing to something about the Lord Jesus. The first thing I want you to tell you about this sign is that it points to Jesus as our creator. According to John chapter one, verse three, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. You see, everything that has a beginning was created by God. And Jesus is revealed to be our creator. You know, some people get really worked up when they think about people promoting the Big Bang Theory, for example, but I'm actually not one of those people who care. Like, I really like it when people promote the Big Bang Theory, because by acknowledging the Big Bang Theory, they're basically saying the universe hasn't eternally existed. You know, if we forget dates for a moment, by acknowledging the Big Bang Theory, we're saying that, hey, planet Earth you know, maybe according to scientists, if they want to claim eight billion years old or seven billion years old, that means it hasn't always existed. Everything we see in creation hasn't always existed. Something brought it into being, something created it. And we're left with the explanation that we have an uncreated creator who brought the universe into existence, just as John has said. And we see this in the miracle that Jesus has performed. We we have five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus turns it into thousands of loaves of bread and thousands of fish. You see, Jesus is the one who put the fish in the ocean. Jesus is the one who created the bread and is able to create more bread. And so Jesus is the one who can sustain the people of the earth. He was also preaching on the kingdom of God at the time and demonstrating that he alone can bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Now it's been 2000 years since this miracle's taken place. And we as humans are still struggling with the issue of poverty on our planet. But by demonstrating this miracle of creating food, Jesus is showing us that he can actually cure world poverty in the future when he returns to establish his kingdom on earth. We read in Revelation chapter seven, verse 15, when it's speaking about the future kingdom of God, when Jesus returns to the earth, it says, "'He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. "'They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore, The sun shall not strike them nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to fountains of living waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that beautiful? We have a God who can wipe away every tear from our eyes, who can solve the problem of world hunger and can protect our bodies from diseases. This is the God who we serve, who is bringing his kingdom to earth in the future um, when he establishes kingdom down here. Now, if we go to our next scene, we see that Jesus also fulfilled prophecy by being a second Moses to Israel, a greater Moses. After the feeding of the 5,000, John records that the people started talking among themselves and saying, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, what did the people mean when they said, this is the prophet that was to come into the world? In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God had actually promised Moses that another prophet would arise who would lead the Israelites in the future. Deuteronomy 18 verse 18 says, I will raise them up for a prophet like you from among their brethren. And so the Jews had an expectation that there would be another Moses-like prophet that would appear on the scene as a miraculous sign to them. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but Islam teaches that the Bible prophesied Muhammad to be that prophet. Yeah, so if you talk to a Muslim, ask him about that. Ask him to explain Deuteronomy 18 to you from a Muslim perspective. So Muslims actually claim that Muhammad was more like Moses than Jesus was, and therefore Muhammad is the prophesied prophet. So if you spoke to a Muslim, they would claim, firstly, Muhammad is more like Moses because Muhammad was born naturally to a mother and father, just like Moses was born naturally to a mother and father, whereas a Muslim would acknowledge that Jesus had a supernatural birth. Muslims acknowledge that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Muslims would also say that the reason why Muhammad is more like Moses is because Muhammad had a wife and children. And they would say that Jesus had no wife and children, therefore Muhammad is more like Moses. They would also read the line that says that God would raise up the prophet from among their brethren. Muslims interpret this to mean not of the Jews, but of the Ishmaelites, the brother of Isaac, because we have Abraham, Isaac and Jacob leading to the Israelites on one branch of the tree. And the other branch, we have Abraham, Ishmael leading to the Arab people and Muhammad comes from the Arab people. And so when a Muslim reads in our English translation of the Hebrew from among their brethren, he's thinking it's the brother of of Isaac, it's Ishmael. So Muhammad being an Arab fulfilled the prophecy. So what should we do this morning? Should we all become Muslims and um, acknowledge Muhammad as the prophet from God? Darren's shaking his head and telling me, let's not do that. Let's not tell them to do that. (laughs) The first comment I want to make is they've made a mistake here. When it says that he's going to raise up a prophet from among the brethren, God is speaking from among the Jews. The brethren is the congregation in front of Moses when he's speaking. Now there's clarity on this um, from Moses's own mouth. When you read the passage in Deuteronomy 18, he says from among your midst. So the prophet's going to rise from within the 12 tribes of Israel. And we know that Jesus is a Jew, just like Moses. Secondly, um, we should notice that Moses is a miracle worker. Uh, you see in Deuteronomy 34, verse nine to 12, after his death, The scribe was writing and said, But since then there is not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in this land, and by all the mighty power and the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. You see, both Moses and Jesus worked signs and wonders before the people which proved that they were sent by God. In Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites complained after they had been slaves in Egypt, they had gone through the Red Sea, they were now in the wilderness and they were complaining to Moses in Exodus chapter 16 saying, we have no food. We're starving in this wilderness. It would have been better if we died in Egypt. So Moses prayed and God sent manna from heaven. The event was so significant. When we think of the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy item I suppose in all of Israel's history, it contained three items in the Ark. You had the two tablets, which contained the Ten Commandments. You had the rod of Aaron, which budded, showing that Aaron was the one that God had chosen to to, um, be the priest. And the third item we see in the Ark of the Covenant is a little bowl with some manna in it to remind the Israelites that for 40 years you were fed in the wilderness by supernatural bread from heaven. So in what way is Jesus, this prophet that Moses prophesied about? Jesus takes these people into a wilderness experience where they have no bread. And the people are complaining, how are we gonna feed these people? They're starving. And Jesus brings food from heaven. Jesus actually creates bread and creates fish for them so that they would have their needs met. You see, Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses witnessed a miracle, but Jesus performs the miracle. Jesus is the creator God in human flesh, performing the miracle of creation before the disciples' eyes. And this is why the people said, this is the prophet who was to come into the world. When we read in the book of Acts later on, we see that Peter, when he's giving his sermon in Acts chapter 3, proclaims that this is the prophet who Moses said would arise, who was like him, And likewise, in Acts chapter seven, we see Stephen, the martyr, when he's giving his sermon before he's stoned to death, he says, this is the prophet who, when he rose up to be leader, it says that the, the, uh, the initial response of the Jews was, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? That's what they said to Moses. Who made you a ruler and a judge? And when Jesus arose, the Israelites said the same thing and persecuted Jesus, who had been appointed by God to lead the Lord's people. But the people who witnessed this miracle, the feeding the 5,000, they recognized this, which is why in the very next verse, it says that they tried to make him king. They wanted to crown him as king because they thought this Jesus is the one that Moses prophesied about. And Moses is the one who delivered us out of slavery in Egypt. And this Jesus is going to deliver us out of slavery to the Romans because they're under Roman oppression. And so they thought he's going to become an earthly king. He's going to rule and crush our enemies. And they didn't understand the spiritual significance. So if we look at the last scene in my PowerPoint, I want you to see that Jesus took this one step further. It's not that he just made supernatural bread from heaven. He himself claimed to be the bread of God for humanity. John 6 verse 35 says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. And a few verses later, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they are dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give you, I give... um, Sorry, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so Jesus offered his body for the people to be our sustenance. You see, we need physical bread to live in this life, but we need spiritual bread to live in the next life. Jesus is the one that can satisfy us. Jesus is the one who can give us eternal life. And so I actually asked this morning if we could reverse communion around Um, so that we could celebrate communion this morning together, thinking about Jesus being the bread from heaven, Jesus being the one that sustains us. You see, Jesus said, if you eat, he said to the woman at the well, if you drink this water, you're going to thirst again. Remember the woman at the well? Drink this water, you'll thirst again. But the one who puts their trust in Jesus, he says, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Isn't that wonderful? He alone can satisfy, and he alone demonstrated authority over all created things. Jesus is our creator, Jesus is our king, and Jesus is the bread of life. So let's partake together as we think about the fact that on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be made right with God, so that we could have a relationship with him and live with him forever. Praise God. Take a few moments to settle your heart as you share the bread and the the juice. He's the bread of life. Jesus hung on nails because he loves you. Don't ever think that nails held him to that cross. What held him to that cross was his love for you. And that's what we celebrate that the, the Creator, the, the King of the Ages, loves us so much that he laid his life down for us. Won't you stand with us together? We're going to finish with a song that just reminds us of the love of God much He loves us, how much He cares for us. Just close your eyes, just spend some time in the presence of the Lord right now.